Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show. I am Louise Salas, your host on the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. And with me, it's my friend, the olive in my martini. <laughs> The Mixtress DC Gina. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I, yeah, I haven't been a garnish in the cocktail yet. <laughs> I feel like I can keep you guessing. I know. I, I'm like, that was surprising. That was a good one. Um, so, more surprises. Today's designated drinker is uh, going to take us on a journey into the past. It's gonna be uh, intoxicating, it's gonna be sobering, and uh, I'm sure it's gonna be enlightening as well. So uh, let's just get this damn show on the road. I'm in today, let's do it. All right, let's welcome Dr. Kristen Burton, the author of The Drunkard's Progress, How Alcohol Became an Intoxicant in the Era of Enlightened Medicine. Whew, what a mouthful. I got it right, I hope. Did I? <laughs> yeah, you got, I mean, it's a, it's a tentative title anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, academics are not known for being short. When it comes to our titles, like, they just get a little longer every time. So uh, maybe we'll get a little more brief in the future. I know a few bartenders have recipes that are about that long too. Right. <laughs> Talk about long-winded. Right, right. Or names of drinks. <laughs> so uh, first, is it all right that we call you Kristen? Absolutely, sure. yeah. yeah. When you're in the title, you deserve it. Absolutely. Right. Doc, I don't know. Doc. Doc's fine, but no, Kristen's good. I've always assumed I've been called worse, so it's fine. <laughs> I mean, when you're in the classroom, yeah. <laughs> who knows what students say, so. Oh, I'm, we, we were all them at one point. <laughs> I know, that's why I worry, but yeah. that's okay. <laughs> so uh, let's talk wh about what you're here for. Let's talk about your book. Okay. Where did it all start? What was your inspiration? All right, so uh, my book is essentially my dissertation, uh, well, what my dissertation was revised. Uh, and when I approached my dissertation, I was mostly interested in kind of the early drinking practices in, in early colonial America, uh, how they came to be. For my master's degree, I focused a lot on beer brewing in early modern London, how it became this big industry. And I started with, well, how does beer transfer over to the colonies and what happens there? And then when I got into it, I realized uh, they aren't drinking beer. They're drinking a lot of rum. And how did that come into being? So that's really where it started. I was kind of looking at this, well, maybe it's a shift in drinking culture that happens. Uh, and it just grew into this massive question about why are people drinking the things that they are? and how much are they drinking and is that acceptable? And this larger discourse over what people drink, who should be drinking it, um, and how much should people be drinking really became central questions of that era. And I began to realize this is the early origins of what becomes the temperance movement. So most of the historical literature out there on prohibition and on temperance really start in the 19th century. And I realized this, these debates start in the 17th century. Wow. So you have to go much further back and look at, first of all, how people are drinking, how that changes. Uh, and a lot of that stems around the fact that distilled spirits became mass produced commodities around the mid 17th century. And it's something that hadn't existed on that scale before. Uh, access to much more potent liquors became available um, for the first time to all social levels and all genders, which was a problem. Yeah, <laughs> when women started drinking spirits, it was like, uh, maybe we, we shouldn't allow this. Uh, and, but people started to ask those kind of questions, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm gonna stop you there, Doc. Uh, thank God, okay? Right? Uh, and we can get into whole that because there's a huge episode that happens in uh, early 18th century London 
the gin craze, and it was highly feminized. Uh, and this is something that historians have looked at, have looked at. Spoonful of sugar. Yeah, right? Spoonful of sugar. Helps that medicine go right. down. <laughs> I mean, Mary Poppins didn't come from nowhere. That's a, that's a truth. You're just saying Mary Poppins was drunk the entire time? Well, she had a magical bag. I'm just <laughs> what else would you put in there? If you historically went to that time period when that when that was allegedly happening, right? Mm-hmm. And you went back, and then you would have in London, mm-hmm. and we can agree on this. There would have been like these little uh, dispensaries everywhere, and for a pence, you could yep. drop a drop a penny of pence yeah. in a machine, and a lot of them look like cats because the pussies, yeah. And you put it in and. You hit the little thing, and all of a sudden, boom, you got a shot of gin. Yep. And uh, at that time, it was made with more sugar, and it wasn't until, I forget what year it was. I want to say it was like the, uh, like 18, like 90-so-ish, when they started making London dry, mm-hmm. when they deleted the sugar depletion. And the reason why, honestly, was dental. Because tea people's teeth were falling yes. out. <laughs> yes. I'm serious. How much sugar people were consuming at that time was absurd. And that, and that also stems to the colonization of the Caribbean, which also ties into the production of rum, which was happening at the same time. So in addition to gin being this huge thing um, in the late 17th, early 18th centuries, uh, rum is also being produced on this huge scale because... It's a byproduct of making sugar. Sugar, yeah. Sugar is like the commodity of that time. Uh, but if there's anything they can make to Excellent. capitalize and make more money, yep. hey, there's all this molasses. We Waste not, what not. Exactly. And then you have rum. So And sailors. Yes. So it's all tied in together and it produces this huge discourse over... Uh, just how much should people be drinking? Uh, at first, people didn't distinguish between liquors and, say, beer uh, the way we do today. And it was a part of that discourse that that distinct distinction came about. Uh, and that's really what I became interested in. And I moved away from this, like, okay, I'm not so much interested in the drinking culture, but more so of how did these ideas about what is acceptable with drinking came into being. And ultimately, it became what I'd like to call a pre-temperance movement history. Why did a temperance movement happen in the 19th century? There's a history leading to that. Uh, when you have to look backward. Washington, D.C. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Too many women in a Baptist church in, in yeah. D.C. hanging out. Finally, are like, How well, they keep their men home? Well, mm-hmm. well it, was, it was more than that. You know, it was, a, it was a wild time. Yes. It was a wild time. And people, there was, there was uh, whiskey places and rum houses and... People were drinking, and yeah, I mean, I understood, um, but how they passed it was was the craziest. They put it on a land act, so they put it. They so people didn't even know what they voted for. Mm-hmm. Oh. And they were very sneaky. And also, like, politics are sneaky. That doesn't oh, happen today. Well, <laughs> they're very transparent. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, in D.C., right? There's it's D.C. and uh, Portland. I can't remember. Is one of the places. There's still temperance fountains, right? They, yep. So there was a there was a dentist. I just keep telling you, it has something to do with teeth. There was a dentist who gave all of his money. What was his name? Cosgrove? What was his last name? Oh, you're getting in the 19th century. It was a little... That's where I stopped. <laughs> so he was, uh, he was a dentist. Anyway, he gave um, all this money to the women to put fresh water because they were convinced that people were drinking alcohol because there was no available water. So he was like one of the first people to go below the water, be- uh, the water table and get like really fresh water for people to drink. And they had these fountains in Washington, D.C. is one that's it's actually fully intact on 7th Street. Okay. And uh, we actually go every year for repeal day and, you know, pop a bottle of champagne illegally in the street and go, whatever. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I do believe it is Dr. Cosgrove. I'm almost, 
I don't know. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah, I, I love this. I, I, I can I can get into the nitty gritty of the, <clears throat> the 18th century, <laughs> the 19th century. You know, the the temperance history, the amount of stuff that's out there that's been written about it is almost overwhelming. And so, uh, kind of an up and coming grad student in alcohol studies is like, you know, where where can I find my own little niche? And I realized. Not very many people have written about that earlier era. There's there's a few books out there that have jumped into the 18th century or even earlier the 17th century in meaningful ways. But uh, the medieval era gets a lot of attention and the 19th century and the modern era get the bulk of attention. There's this just kind of lapse, this huh. gap. Like a void. Huh? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you'll get books that focus on the 19th century. They'll have like, a chapter on the 18th century and it's very uh, sweeping overview uh, of this, what I would say is one of the most pivotal eras in changing the way people think about alcohol. Uh, you don't just wake up in the first day, January 1st of, you know, 1800 and say, well, alcohol is probably a problem. I think it's making people sick and maybe we should regulate it. You know, there's century, if you think about people's relationship with alcohol for millennia since the beginning of civilization, humans have been producing, consuming, living with alcohol and never questioning it uh, until that era. And I was uh, fascinated by that question. Why? Yeah. Uh, how did that come into being? So that's really what the heart of the book is, this idea of defining intoxication and grouping alcohol in with other drugs and intoxicants. That's really cool. So how, with your research, <clears throat> with things like you say, there's there's this void, like where, what have you found and, and what, what have you used to like come up with where your theories, where, where are you, if there's a void, how are you right. fight? Like, it's like trying to find that needle in a haystack. A little bit, but there's also a lot of stuff out there that people simply haven't looked at the way that I've been looking at it. Uh, so some of the main sources that I use include a lot of cookbooks, cookery books uh, that women kept in their homes because women were the primary producers of alcohol for centuries. Uh, beer brewing, yeah, yeah. Um, it, there's a feminized term for brewer that is, I mean, it's only for women, it's Brewster. Uh, there's no masculine specific term for beer brewer. That's just for men. Because uh, women were so strongly associated with the production of ale and beer for so long that they have their own term, they're Brewsters. And bread. Uh, and what? And bread. And they would make their bread and yeah. make, and they would, exactly. yeah, and, they, and it was a byproduct. Yes, cooking, uh, baking, and brewing. It, it was considered women's work for a really long time. It's something you did in the household. That's, you know, men worked outside of the house. Uh, and that's what my master's thesis focused on, in addition to kind of um, the masculinization of the trade, uh, how the introduction of hops, and we don't need to get into all that, but... Um, <laughs> how the introduction of hops into beer brewing did lead to this kind of masculization of the trade. Uh, and and there's other historians who have looked at uh, women getting pushed out of that. But for centuries, alcohol was, that was women's game. Yeah. I mean, you look at ancient Sumerians have uh, Ninkasi, the, the goddess of beer brewing. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and the, and the, the hymn to Ninkasi is essentially a recipe for brewing beer. Um, so this is this is something that has existed for a really long time. This idea that women are not supposed to drink is very modern. And a lot of it does come out of this discourse from the 18th century. Uh, but I look at these cookery books, uh, recipes written by women, 
Uh, also, medicinal texts is where I started because distilled spirits were considered the waters of life, aqua vita, right? Uh, they were medicinal. Uh, physicians called them new jewels of health. They could, there's this guy, George Baker, uh, it was a, it's a, from the 1570s, this text, he wrote that distilled spirits could make the lame walk again. <laughs> like, <laughs> the opposite effect, actually. <laughs> I may not work. Flip that. Well. When you feel no pain, you can pretty much do anything. <laughs> there, there was no illness that distilled spirits could not cure. And that was 1570s. Fast forward a century by the 1670s, and we're starting to see more uh, public proclamations, primarily from ministers. You know, those moral authorities are some of the first people to come out and say, this is actually becoming a problem. Uh, look at the way people are conducting themselves. You're not behaving in a way that's spiritual. You're not being a good child of God, right? You are engaging in gluttony. Yeah, uh, you're drinking in excess, and this is a problem. So, uh, looking at cookery books and these medicinal texts, I kind of established the basis of this is how people lived with alcohol, distilled spirits specifically. This is how they perceived them. They were medicinal. They were also a way for the wealthy to show off how wealthy they were because that's how exclusive distilled spirits were at that time. Yeah. Um, and then fast forwarding into the 17th century when they become a commodity of the Atlantic world and colonization, then it does become accessible, it becomes cheaper, and more and more people are drinking, and then we start to see the effects of drunkenness on a much larger scale. Yeah. Because people don't distinguish, like I said, between drinking a pint of beer and, say, drinking a pint of rum, right? Yeah. It was somewhere in that exact, I don't know what year it was, it was right then when they went from being able, they used to make things in copper stills and everything was very small. Yes. And then all of a sudden, the modern age started happening and they came up with a column still, which means they could produce gin and vodka or a neutral spirit and, and flavor it uh, very quickly within hours. Mm -hmm. So that so mass production came into play. It was, it, was it was an opportunity to make money and then bring something that was never to, for the, for the common mm -hmm. people, quickly to get it. And like, you know, it's just, you know, it's like everything else. It's like, it's like, you know, I mean, yeah, I would love to go to like Saks every day, but I go to Target and Target for the masses. So there you go. And that just shows how high the demand was that they're developing this kind of technology to produce it at that scale because they know they can sell it. Yeah, right? of course. Um, and that's supply and demand. Exactly. And it, that's what happens throughout this whole era is this huge process of transformation in the way people produce, consume and think about alcohol. And uh, so I look at those cookery books, I look at those medicinal texts, um, the, uh, the ministers and their sermons against excessive drinking. Oh yeah, I'm sure that was key as to what was going on. Yes. I mean, it's like filling, you work backwards from that, but he, they were speaking to it because it was of concern for them. Right, yeah. right. And it, as it was becoming more and more of a problem, there are some of the earliest voices to denounce it. And then you start seeing more public officials starting to say, wait, this is starting to affect our bottom line. You have drunk laborers, you have inefficient labor production. Yeah. And then it spurns it to this larger issue of, okay, well, who should be drinking? Do Should laborers have access to these spirits? Um, should women? Should slaves? Yeah. You know, it becomes this huge discourse over accessibility and also the class divide becomes really key because, like I said, spirits were a thing that limited, uh, when it was of limited supply, only certain people in the population had access to it. Well, now everyone has access to it, so it's not special anymore. And there are people who say, 
these poor laborers are literally drinking above their station. They're not content with beer anymore. They must have spirits. And that was a problem. So there's a lot of layers to unpack. And I, I realized that as I was jumping into it, I was like, this is becoming a huge topic. And there's this massive debate going on throughout this whole uh, era, primarily in the 18th century. It gets caught up in enlightenment philosophy, you know, this new emphasis on reason and rationality when you uphold the rational mind as the key to um, civilization and society. Uh, well, drunkenness doesn't fit into that, <laughs> right? You can't be drunk and then be a rational thinker. So you well, have... Well, I don't know. I might beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> we figured out that moderate line, <laughs> right? Centuries of practice, we finally got to moderation. Um, but yeah, it's this whole discourse over what is acceptable in these new kind of emerging early modern and then eventually modern societies. Uh, and the last people to get in on the game in my book are the physicians. So I kind of start with the physicians with these medical texts and I end with the physicians as they are now being influenced by enlightenment philosophy. Uh, they're seeing these, this emerging public issue of people who are yeah, drunk in the streets and that wasn't necessarily something they saw on that scale before, especially after the gin craze. And then the physicians are saying, this is a medical issue. This is affecting the body in addition to the mind. And they step in as the authority yeah. on this issue and they medicalize it in a way that's beneficial for them professionally. Sure. Uh, because physicians for a long time weren't very popular. Uh, they got a bad reputation for a long time. They kept fleeing city the cities when the plague would break out. <laughs> Not a good way to get people to trust you. Uh, but this was a way for them to establish their profession in a way uh, that it hadn't been established before. So this was something they made themselves the authority on. They start defining new ideas of uh, physical addiction and drinking. And it's by the, the mid-19th century you uh, see the term uh, alcoholism begin to emerge. Oh. So, yeah. Oh, I guess I didn't realize. It's, it's, you don't think about it as to when. It's at the same time. Like, I'm serious. It's the same time the cocktail, like the word cocktail, actually comes into play. Right. Oh, really? Yes, it was quite, I mean... They're still looking for the original text and who coined it because they cannot find it. Like, it doesn't exist. I mean... We'll ask anyone in New Orleans and we have our story. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm saying, like, like, bartenders, you know, keeping good records. Ah, never. So, um, they're trying to figure out when that happened, but you're, but alcoholism, she's right. I mean, a hundred, I mean, a hundred percent. It was very, around the same exact time, it was like that, uh, that close of the century where everything started having terms. And that's when I, it got very interesting and, you're in the birthplace of cocktails here, and we're, you know, we're in New Orleans, right? We, did we tell everybody that they're here. Oh yes, I, well, just in case we haven't, yes, we are in the heart <laughs> of New Orleans, <laughs> here at uh, the Napoleon House, and uh, you're probably hearing a lot of odd background uh, noises, but uh, it's because it's, it's an old building, and they're doing some major, major renovations. So, uh, um, some come September, according to Chef, it should be all done. And it should be beautiful, so you should come and visit. It's, a, it's beautiful as it is. They're open for business. So uh, just uh, excuse the noise, please. But uh, what I think is amazing where you are in your location, you could just walk into a history lesson mm -hmm. right here of like what, where it came from, mother cocktails, Sazerac's. Uh, I mean, um, and if you drink along the way, you'll literally stumble upon them. Yes. Yeah, yes, but. <laughs> I'm full of it. But you have places also where temperance was held, like Roosevelt, the Roosevelt Hotel. It's yeah. right here. I mean, you had so much history happen in one building, you know, between uh, Civil War, everything that happened, um, 
Temperance move. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Peychaud's apothecary shop is just up the street. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Peychaud's bitter is right here. I mean, right here. And now that was medicinal as well. Yes. And then you get to the point where you're saying about the physicians, right? I love that when people, I, I think the physicians became the, like the key to everything is because during prohibition, you were given prescriptions. Yes. So say that you had quite a bit of money. Oh, that's great. You can get a prescription for gin and tonic because you needed that every day. You need a little tonic fixer. Is it what? I wonder if that's why it's called a tonic. Um, well, <laughs> yeah. it was. Well, I mean, it was invented. I mean, because tonic refers to usually some kind of medicinal. Well, it was invented. Yeah. Honestly, tonic was invented with quinine, and it was to help with um, the um, mosquitoes and malaria yeah. in India. Again, back to colonialism. <laughs> it all comes back to colonialism. <laughs> My students get tired of hearing about it, but I'm telling you, it's all part of the story. <laughs> Smart. Well, you know what? Speaking of that, let's, uh, let's have a drink. Oh, okay, let's good. All right. Let's have a little, a little, a little tonic ourselves. <laughs> um, we're going to do a little something. I think this is the designated drinker show. <laughs> no, this is a little different, and it'll be fine. We're going to put it in here. Sorry. Should have, I should have uh, set it up a little bit. Nice job, You know, whatevs. Okay, so a little bird told me, named Louise, just kidding. Chirp, 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 chirp. Told me that you are a whiskey drinker, which is great for me. And then, of course, you'll appreciate that in history, you would have drank a whiskey drink sometime in the early hours of the day. Right, of course. You gotta set yourself up somehow, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was considered a little pop. So we're gonna put uh, about a half a lemon, about, if you're gonna measure it at home, about one, like one and a quarter ounces of lemon juice in this. And like, I like a little bit heavy on this, just cause we're gonna um, add what I call a little uh, strawberry tonic, which is not quite tonic, cause there's no quinine. It's an elixir, so what this is, it has, um, it's like strawberry, a little bit of uh, basil, and then um, just a little bit of a spice that's mixed in there, and it's our syrup that we make. So it's kind of it's kind of healthy, right? Or, and, or not? And as for listeners, you'll give us a recipe on how to make make an, an, yes. an idea of that, yes. something like that. And then we're gonna take um, strawberry and beet juice. So this is juice, beets, and strawberries. So we are adding a little bit of uh, sugar in a different way. So we're gonna add two ounces of this. So right now we're at uh, one and a quarter ounces of uh, lemon juice two ounces beaten strawberry, um, one ounce of uh, strawberry basil syrup, okay? So we have in there all the things that generally, allegedly, medicine was made from, right? Yeah, it sounds healthy to I me. Mean, Absolutely. This, you know, it's kind of healthy, right? And then we're gonna take what everybody wanted the most of and we're gonna put some liquor in it. So uh, we're gonna use one and a half ounces of Knob Creek. And if you are familiar with this, it's kind of the base of doing a sours. Except we are changing it up just a little bit because I do not want to put an egg in it this morning. And that will make it fun. So we're gonna put some ice. This is always the, well, this is the second best part of the show. Okay. The best part of the show is where we get to drink it. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but watching Gina put a drink together is always amazing. Fascinating, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you're and you're engaging in your historical roots, a woman producing alcohol for people to uh, get healthier by. Oh. <laughs> I'll get behind a still with you any day. <laughs> you wanna I'll be give me a little shake. Just a little. 
She had me do it yesterday. It was pretty, uh, it was pretty, uh. There's an egg white drink, right? So you have to, you need help. So we're gonna pour this over fresh ice. Very pretty. And you're gonna get back about to the quarter top of your glass. And that's what you want because we are gonna actually top this off with a little bit of bubbling. Because, you know, we have to celebrate your book. And, and, and we're drinking like the elite now, that's for sure. Yeah. Like they did in uh, the 17th century. So we're, we're just using this on a, um, a little um, a cava brut from Spain. You can use anything. You just want to make sure that you have a nice um, fizz to it. Look at that. So would you go drier on that then? Um, you know, it's kind of a taste preference. I feel like... If you're more into, you know, drier, it's fine. If you like it a little bit sweeter, fine. If you, also these drinks are a little forgiving, you can use a really dry rum in here. It'd be really nice. Mm -hmm. So when we're using any carbonation, just a little bit of a pull through and we're even topping no garnish on this cocktail. None needed. The bubbles are good to go. Thank you. And there you go. Thank you so much. We're not doing any straws today. We're keeping environmentally conscious. Cheers. Cheers, hey. Cheers. straws back then, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when did the straw come into play? Actually, it's an ancient. Uh, oh, that's okay. beautiful. The, here's the story. First okay, before the story. Fantastic. This is <laughs> so light and refreshing. And the fact that it's whiskey, but it's. I don't taste the whiskey. No. It's breakfast whiskey. You breakfast whiskey? whiskey. <laughs> the best kind of whiskey. I would have been a great physician. People would have come in every day and been like, what's, what's bothering you? Gina, what's you still bothering? are a physician. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I would have been like, what, what's bothering you? Like, hurts? Right. No problem. Pour this on it and then drink two bottles of it and you'll be fine. Okay, sorry. Tell me about the straws. Oh, yeah, no. I got distracted. You know, this is the, the historian's <laughs> mind. It's like, oh, no, I can tell you the story about that. Um, so the story is, is that uh, Babylonians allegedly perhaps uh, invented something of a reed straw oh. to drink beer because when they would make beer they would just throw everything in together they didn't filter it and all of the mash would you know kind of ferment and foam at the top and there'd be a bit of a crust at the top and they would stick the straws through that as it after yeah. it finished fermenting stick the straws through so they could drink the beer and it would usually just be a pot sitting in the middle of a, in a, of a room and people would gather together stick their straws in these hollowed out reeds and uh, wow. drink their beer. But at least, maybe we should bring those back and use reeds at least. <laughs> cool. Right. Is a you know, they're biodegradable as part of, it's a green straw, literally. I did not know that, and I love that. <laughs> There's these little, little uh, etchings in these clay tablets of people gathered around a pot, and they have these really long, they're long, like, <laughs> straws. Because so you can lay them. back. Yeah. <laughs> they had it figured out, I'm telling you. When it comes to creating alcohol and drinking alcohol, humans have never lacked ingenuity. <laughs> I mean, I thought my favorite was, like, the Egyptian stories, like the honeymoon. You know, the honeymoon comes from mead. You take honey, and you make it, and uh, they would ferment it, and you would drink it, you know, to, you know. You were like, oh, fertility got you loose. Yes. So literally. So and, and, and like and for one month you hung out with your spouse <laughs> drinking this. That's why you clearly a baby was coming from that, right? Anyway. It worked, right? Um that was like my favorite story, but I now think that uh, the invention of the reed and punching it through, I, I the reed like straw, yeah. Yeah. You should uh I don't know. We should make, maybe like get somebody like do that just for fun. Yeah. I think uh, a long, uh, well, I say a long time ago, um, 
maybe early 2000s. Uh, That's not a long time ago in I your know. world. That was like yesterday. Well, in terms of the cra- <laughs> like craft brewing, like because Anchor, the Anchor Brewing Company, yeah. uh, they I think they did that like 10 or 15 years ago, something like that. They they collaborated with people and did an old ancient style uh, Babylonian brew. And then they got together, they punched their straws through and drank it. Up. See, I want to wear the cloth and everything. I want to have like a full on <laughs> rager. So we're going we're gonna to change it up. Like I want to dress in the style. Let's put some thorns in my head. Let's do the whole thing. I think that's about the drink, though. I would not know there's beet juice in there at all. The strawberry comes. I think it kind of. Yeah. And is it the sugar from the beet? Is that what you're talking about? Because I mean, yeah, yeah, it's very good. It's I mean, it's uh, sugar from the beet. I mean, you can, you know, I, I beets have been a very crucial part of alcohol making in general because they were like a form of uh, cheap sugar. Yeah. So they had white beets, they weren't actually red. Red beets didn't come until later when they had put nitrogen, more nitrogen in it to get the color. Um, but anyway, when we go to farming now, I mean, I feel like I wanna like hang out and like be like, all right, the episode, we're good. Let's go talk about your body. So. With the collapse of the sugar. No, but like, that's why I thought it'd be fun. Yeah, that's why I thought it'd be fun to use a little bit of uh, beet for you because I feel like that's like one thing that like definitely keeps coming up over and over again of right. how they did all that. Right. How they were able to produce it because sugar cane, wasn't it as expensive? It was hard to get. It was very hard to get. Yeah, it was hard to like physically show up. Yeah, the distance. Yeah, they figured out other ways to derive sugar, and that was one of them. Yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah they tried growing sugar cane in places of Spain, but it still wasn't the right climate for it. So that's why when they did Europeans colonize the different islands in the Caribbean, sugar cane was the commodity because they've been trying to get at it for so long. But it's all the way over in India. It's in certain parts of Africa. Uh, you know that that's not a those aren't accessible regions for them to yeah. land that was not theirs too. Exactly. Well, yeah. that's the whole part of that imperialism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, imperialism. <laughs> Funny how that worked. What was it? Uh, sun never sets on the British Empire. That was it, right? Yeah. Oh, social studies. <laughs> I did remember something. I'm going to call my social studies teacher and be like, I was listening and passing notes. A lot of note passing. Hey, it's all, you know, I, I encourage collaboration in my classroom. As long as people are learning the material, that's what I care about. But I mean, and you were absolutely right about uh, the sugar beets being a huge part of uh, early efforts to create sugar cultivation. And then also after emancipation, too, uh, and kind of the fall of the sugar industry in the Caribbean, uh, they returned to it later, as well as in other ways of trying to produce sugar. Uh, it never was as quite as successful, but it was still a really important part. Red Velvet Cake came from it, though. Yeah. Oh, hey. <laughs> That's true. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, Red Velvet Cake came from necessity during that time. That was when it was invented, so it came from using beets because of that. Well, thank you, beets. Oh. Yeah, because it couldn't get pure sugar. Yeah. I can get behind that. <laughs> I realize we just met. I mean, I might be, a, I don't know. I, I sometimes really like start like loving my guests, but now I'm like, so I need to learn more. I need to do more. I feel like all this stuff. Um, I love old cookbooks too, I think. Oh yeah. I, I think that that is an incredible thing. And like learning how to count drachms and stuff like that. Like they came from that, all that weight and everything when they made the different alcohols and everything. I would just, I'm so curious to know what those early cordials tasted like because the amount of herbs and fruits that they put into those things is crazy to me. They're like, throw in rosemary, throw in cloves, throw in some, uh, if you're like, they would throw in like saffron threads. I mean, for the fancy ones, uh, th- <laughs> the juice of 30 oranges, uh, gold leaf, uh, ambergris, <laughs> deer musk. Oh my I goodness. Mean, like, they, they went 
crazy with yeah. it. I just kind of want to know what they tasted like. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> and that, I, I, I know I brought up this book before, but the book of early American beverages, which I absolutely adore, has like, I mean, it was written in the 40, uh, 40s, and then they did one more reprint, and then it died. No one ever has reprinted it since. And um, there is a lot of recipes in there for, it's all beverages, obviously. Um, and, and they date back as far as like 1600s for sure, say 1660. And like, that's exactly what it was like. And, and I've made some stuff out of there, but like easy stuff, like the elderflower wines and like the cherry wines and stuff like that. Or um, I, I never got into like the really crazy stuff. Like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I gotta find the right witch that's gonna give me the deer musk that I need. <laughs> that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, right. I'm looking, I'm looking for that lady because I feel like they're out there. I just haven't met them yet. And hopefully, I'll make this podcast. Be like, they're gonna be like, oh, this is how you get the word out. <laughs> People will find you. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll squeeze the glands of a deer. So, it's fine. <laughs> so, if you need to find Gina <laughs> and tell her where you can get her deer musk, or you would like the recipe to today's <laughs> drink, just head over to designateddrinker.show. That's designateddrinker.show. How's that, Gina? That was good. You like that? Yeah. yeah. yeah this was fantastic. Put your call out there. Maybe we'll get your deer. I call to wild. <laughs> the wildlings. Collect your coven of, of witches. Uh, yeah. get, get your little, was it, wow. coven? Yeah. yeah. We're in the right space for that. That's true. <laughs> so, you know what it is? No. Yes. But don't worry. There's more later. Okay. Should we go to a university? Absolutely. Yeah. So, with that, it's last call. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, you don't have to go home. Okay. Well, let's go to another barn. That's fine. And re- <laughs> talk some more. Done. <laughs> cheers. Hey, cheers. Thank you all so much. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs>